If you're here for the first time, I'd like to uh, extend my greeting. My name is Mark Mullery. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And um, before I bring the message from the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to give you a little preview of, of what's coming. Um, in the month of August, we're going to have the sermons from Psalm 119. Now, when you hear the phrase God's word, what, what comes to mind? If I just say God's word, what, what comes to mind? And often we think of the Bible. Psalm 119 is one writer's reflections on God's word and God's words. And more than that, it's really one writer's conversation with the God who speaks. And the psalmist is so overwhelmed as he considers all that God says to him that he actually can't stop writing. And so he goes on for 22 eight-verse stanzas reflecting on God's law. Word, precept, statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies, and promises. And so for the five Sundays uh, co coming next, four in August and the first in September, we're going to be soaking in uh, each Sunday one of those stanzas, those eight-verse stanzas from Psalm 119. We'll have four different leaders here uh, from our church speaking. Justin Pierce will be speaking next week, and uh, I'll be following that. We'll also get to hear from Christo Voda and Adam Supis bringing sermons for us. So, yeah, looking forward to that. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> more importantly, we're going to hear this psalmist, a human being like you and me, opening up to the person who matters most, this saving God who not only creates us, but redeems us and speaks to us out of his great love. Sometimes people can feel a little maybe burdened by Psalm 119, that it's, it's a little clinical or it's just kind of an ode to an old book, but we'll listen in and find that the psalmist is pleading with God for help and rescue, expressing his confidence in God, his need for God, and reminding himself and us who God really is. We'll get to enter into this conversation with the God who one day would come in the person of Jesus Christ and say, my sheep know my voice, right? They hear my words and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. So that's what's coming in August. And then um, when we're done with that, we're going to start an extended series in the gospel of Mark. So this morning we're concluding our eight week series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're in the last chapter, chapter 12. And Karen Vesegi is going to bring God's word to us this morning. So. Tune your ears. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 to 14. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. 
before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our creator. And we humble ourselves before you now. Your word is open in front of us. We have just heard these words. And there is the potential for eternal things to happen. Because your word is living and active. Make these words to us words of delight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a story from this book, The Generosity Project, about a man named Manoj, who is a trader, a real estate uh, trader in London. He says, as he worked and became more successful, he says, my success changed me as a person very, very radically. I became ruthless. I became arrogant. And friendships didn't really matter anymore. So there were a lot of friendships that I had, but money changed me so much that money was more important than people. And so people got sidelined, and the draw of money just kept on, kept on luring me to make more money. Was I happy? No, I liken it to the idea of going up to the top of a mountain. And what do you expect to see at the top of a mountain? You expect to see some beautiful scenery, a sense of, I've arrived, a sense of satisfaction, contentment. But it was never there. We got to the top of a mountain after doing one deal... And we were never happy. And so essentially, I would try and do another deal to get happier. But money just didn't bring me any joy whatsoever. Money just didn't bring me any joy whatsoever. So here is Ecclesiastes brought forward to London in 2008 is when that story takes place. Ever since Adam and Eve decided back in the garden that life would be better with them in charge instead of God, people have been looking for satisfaction and joy apart from God. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the Hebrew word for preacher is Kohelet, he picks up this quest. If you remember back in the beginning, he poses this question for us in chapter uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, what does man gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. Under the sun is his way of saying apart from God. 
And his answer, what does man gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun? His answer is the same as Minoj gave, nothing. It's empty. It's vain. He's been, this author has been probing the world, looking for joy, for satisfaction apart from God. And he's discovering that this quest is like trying to wrap your hands around the wind. You come up with nothing. He's anticipating what Jesus would teach when he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, everything under the sun, and forfeits his soul? So there really is nothing new under the sun. Generations of people have looked for joy under the sun and found it empty. And so now, in chapter 12, Kohelet, the preacher, is wrapping things up with a word of hope. And his conclusion, if I could summarize what I think he's saying to us here, I think it would be this. Listen. Listen to me while there's still time. There's an urgent plea from the preacher. Listen to me. Listen while there's still time. And he's going to urge us to listen to him and face the fact of our own mortality. To listen to him and listen to these wise words and others like them. To listen to him to fear God and keep his command. So that's where this chapter goes. So first we want to listen to the preacher and we want to face the fact of our own mortality. That's where this begins. You know, we live in a culture that is fixated on looking young and being healthy and avoiding thinking about our own death and death itself as, at kind of all costs. Just an article, typical article, see these all the time last week. How much exercise do you need for your longest life, right? How long can, can we live if we exercise, exercise proper, properly? Marketing directed to retired people, and maybe at this stage of my life, I'm noticing these things more than I used to. It tends to be pretty upbeat, I've noticed. The themes are, it's things like retirees traveling internationally or being there when the grandkids are born. One ad for a retirement community puts it this way, it's not about what you're giving up, but what's new and what's next. All very happy. With that in mind, the preacher is going to say, I want to tell you a little bit about what's next. And it's not quite that cheerful. I want you to take a realistic look at what's coming. He's saying, days are coming when you'll find no pleasure in them and all desire fades. So I want you to let the magnificent poetry, this is some of the most spectacular poetry that's ever been written. And many uh, authors and, and, and writers have greatly appreciated the book of Ecclesiastes in this chapter in particular, just for the beauty of the poetry. Let this poetry carry you along first as we get a picture of old age and then death. He says in verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return like rain. What's, what's, he, what's the picture he's painting for us here? He's saying old age is like a night descending. It's getting darker and darker. Or like the regathering of a storm when this bad thing is coming. Then in verses 3 and 4 he says, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, the grinders cease because they're few and those who look through the window are dimmed and the Doors on the street are shut. When the sound of grinding is low. What's, what's the picture here? Can you, can you be carried along by the imagery here? Do you, do you get what he's talking about? He's talking about a great house that's fallen into decline. Think of one of those magnificent British 
manor houses that you see in the TV shows. But now the gardens are overgrown. <clears throat> There's hardly anyone to cook and clean. The paint is peeling. The roof is leaking. The windows need cleaning. And then he says, the sound of a, at the, one rises at the sound of a bird. I think, I think he's getting at people getting older and just sleeping so lightly that even a bird singing is all it takes to, to wake them up from a, a not very satisfying sleep. And then he talks about being afraid of what's high and terrors in the way. The fear of falling, breaking your hip, knowing that you're not going to be able to survive a fall, or being jostled in the way. Even going out in the street can be scary for this, this old man because he's afraid of being bumped and, and, and pushed in the, in the crowd. And then this picture, the grasshopper drags itself along. What's that all about? Well, Leslie and I witnessed this grisly ritual every fall in our garage when the crickets make their way inside and then they start losing their legs. It's the weirdest thing. And they just drag themselves along in our garage. I think I know what grasshoppers dragging themselves along look like. You see what he's, he's and he's saying, you know what? This is you. This is your future. The longer you live, he's saying, the more you lose. I remember Leslie's grandma, Pat, who lived well into her 90s, at one point just sharing with us, she said, look, I've outlived my husband and I've outlived all my friends. They're all gone. And the next thing up then is death, right? He says in verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And you get these images here. I think he's talking about the body being sort of ultimately finely broken beyond repair, beyond what can, can, it can recover from. The silver cord of the spine snapped. The golden bowl, your head, finely broken. This pitcher containing our, our organs and our heart can't, can't make it anymore. Finally, the, the, the wheel, the... the um, Excuse me, the, uh, let me get back to that, that phrase there. The wheel broken at the cistern. The idea, our legs and hips just no longer work anymore until we're brought right back round to Genesis. God formed man from the dust, Genesis 2-7, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's where life comes from, out of the dust, by the life-giving breath of God. But then chapter 3, verse 19, the consequence of Adam and Eve choosing to live under the sun he says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now, still to come, not in view in Ecclesiastes, but coming is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who would die as Adam did, but would not return to the dust. Instead, Jesus would rise again, and through him we have the promise that one day death will be swallowed up forever, as we sang already this morning, but not yet. Under the sun, here's reality. No matter what the ads say, live long enough and you'll experience loss and eventually death. The writer wants us to have a realistic view of what's next. But he doesn't leave us under the sun. The very first thing he says at the beginning of the chapter is this. Remember 
also your creator in the days of your youth. You know, the God who's put eternity into the hearts of all people, he's calling out, he's reaching out, especially to the younger ones. People in their 20s and teens often assume that they're immortal or that old age somehow doesn't apply to them. I know because I lived there once too, but I want to I just slow down. If you're here this morning and you're in your teens or your 20s, God is addressing you personally this morning. I want to urge you to lean in right here and right now to what God is saying. Hear this, remember your creator, especially in the days of your youth. What does that look like, to remember your creator? It means you submit everything you have and everything you are to God. You hold nothing back from him. Your dreams, your ambitions, your relationships, your career, you hold nothing back from your creator. You've only received, you only have those things because you've received them and you give them, excuse me, back to him. You die to everything under the sun and you look to Christ. And when you look to Christ, you discover that when you have him, you have more than you could have ever imagined. What you lose in remembering your creator cannot compare with the eternal life that you gain in union with Jesus Christ. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Have you made that step? Have you crossed that bridge? Have you made that decision? Have you given that all of who you are life to God in Christ? If you haven't, I urge you, don't wait. You have no guarantee of another day. You have no guarantee of a long life. But you have a creator who's reaching out to you today, calling you to come and serve and honor and know and follow him. Listen to the preacher. Face the fact of your mortality. Second, listen to wise words like these. Here again, verses 9 through 12. Being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So here we step back from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we think about other books and writings first that this author has put together. He weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs with great care. Now, this may be a sort of a second writer, a narrator, uh, framing the end of, of what's happening here. But the point is this. This book that we've been reading, Ecclesiastes, it's part of something larger. 
even 2,500 or so years ago, as this was, was, was being written and, and, and preserved, there was an awareness that, that there were these books that were special amongst other books, amongst all books. Ecclesiastes is a part of a larger collection of words of delight, words of truth. So this author, Solomon or someone perhaps writing in his name, has collected Proverbs. We can think of the book of Proverbs and words of delight. He's worked hard at his craft, seeking literary skill and clarity while shining forth God's truth. Now, here is an indication. This isn't a robust doctrine of Scripture, but here is an indication of this thing we call the Bible, a collection of writings done by real people. They didn't just drop out of the sky. They weren't just dictated by angels. These were real people in real places who are writing what God is showing them, but they're also something that are given by one shepherd. Did you notice that in verse 11? They are given by one shepherd. I take that as a reference to God, the good shepherd. And what's the purpose of these writings? These writings are given to God's people for wisdom, to learn truth. And did you notice verse 11? The words of the wise are like goads. What does that mean? I want to just illustrate here. When I, was, um, when I was growing up, my sister and I fought a lot. And I heard more than a few times, Mark, stop goading your sister. What did she mean by that? She meant stop provoking her, taunting her, needling her, poking her, and seeking any way you can to get a reaction from her. Stop goading your sister. We don't use goads much today and don't see them around too much, but a, a goad is a sharp stick that's used for cattle, oxen, cows, donkeys. This is actually not a goad. This is a walking stick, but you get the idea. There's a point at the end of this, and so the uh, guy that's in charge is, is poking the cows or the sheep or the whatever to get them to go in the right direction, to move in the right way. So the idea is this. I want you to stop and put yourself in this picture. The words of the wise are like goads. You know what that means? That means you're like a donkey and the Bible is like a sharp stick. And God uses his word to goad you. In fact, Jesus himself will say to Paul on the road to Damascus, Stop kicking against the goads. Stop resisting what I'm trying to do in your life. Now, just take a moment and think about this. God is telling you that there are times when he wants to make you uncomfortable. Do you get that? He's not irritated with you. He's not mean. He loves you and he's trying to redirect you in the right way. Reading the Bible shouldn't just make you feel warm and fuzzy. It can be enormously comforting and thank God for that. But it's more than that. Reading the Bible shouldn't just reinforce what you already know. 
It's more than that. Reading the Bible should regularly make you uncomfortable because the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed. God wants to change you to make you more like Christ. That's why in the passage Vince read last week, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's, it's useful to equip the man of God for every good work. It's also useful for correction and reproof, for correction and reproof. Do you see what that means? God intends to goad us with his word. So I just want to ask this morning, when was the last time you read your Bible and were goaded into changing the way you're thinking or plans you had or the direction of your life? The book of Ecclesiastes is a 12-chapter goad. God is poking at us saying, listen, if you're living for all this world offers, I don't want to leave you comfortable in that place. I want to poke and prod you to get you to move to a different place. I want to poke and prod you so that your hope is not in this world. If your hope is fixed in something in this world, it can be lost. And where does that leave you? But God wants your hope to be in a city whose builder and maker is God. And an eternal covenant with a God who never dies and will bring you into a new creation to be with him forever. This one shepherd is goading us through this book. And so this means that this book, like all the 66 books of scripture, actually have two authors. There's a human author, and behind that human author, there's one shepherd, a divine author. And that shepherd would one day show up in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who's gathering his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and who says, my sheep hear my voice. Right? There are these words, words of delight, words of truth, wise words that we hear, and in them we hear the voice of Christ, and he says, I know them, and they follow me. And through these words, we have a relationship with him. He talks to us, and we talk back to him, and we follow him. He brings us into this relationship. Oh, this good shepherd, this one shepherd, has left us with words of delight. The fallen world we live in is filled with half-truths, with shimmering mirages of joy that can never satisfy. But the sharp stick of scripture pushes us and directs us in the right way, doesn't it? I remember when I first, in my teenage years, began going to this little church plant at the College of San Mateo, and I began hearing expository preaching from the Bible. It was like a goad to me. It began to wake me from my slumber, and it began to pierce the illusions of the life I was living for life under the sun. And through it, I became uncomfortably aware that I was a sinner, and there was a God to whom I was going to give account. And through that, I experienced the opportunity then to, to repent and turn and follow Christ. How grateful I am that his word didn't just reinforce me where I was. It goaded me to new life in Christ. Finally, we leave with this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Hear these words again, verses 13 and 14. The end. 
the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's the end of the matter. The writer, the preacher, doesn't leave us under the sun. He leaves us with the God who made the sun. And he says, here's the summary. Here's what you need to hang on to. Fear God and keep his commands. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God is to have this reverent awe. When I um, was, was growing up, we used to go visit the family farm in Indiana, and there was a time when Bill, the farmer, had pigs, and there was just this one wire that he said was an electric fence, and we were not to touch it because that's what kept the pigs where they were supposed to be. So, of course, what do you think I did? When nobody was looking, I touched it. And you know what happened? Nothing. So, I, well, that, didn't, that wasn't so bad. So then I touched it again, and I held on. You know what happened? Something happened. <laughs> the electricity went through the wire, and I jumped about five feet in the air. And I'll tell you what, I had some fear of that wire after that. There was a reverent awe. That wire had an important purpose, and it needed to be respected. And so the writer says, fear God. Give him the respect that is due him. He is a holy creator. We want to be stunned by his holiness and thrilled by his love. As a sinner, I deserve judgment and condemnation, yet through Christ I have peace with God. And so I want to live honoring him as my creator, revering and respecting that this is his world that he's put me in, and I get to know and serve him here. So I want to keep his commands. I want to read his word and listen to him goad and encourage and nurture and strengthen and guide and speak to me so that I can follow him and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the whole duty of man. Actually, I understand that the Hebrew here doesn't have that word duty in it. It literally could be translated, for this is the whole of man. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is it. This is everything all summed up in one place. Fear God and keep his commands. Why? Well, he leaves us with this thought. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, here's another hint at a wider doctrine that will be developed when we get to the New Testament. The doctrine of judgment. God will bring everything into judgment. Every deed and every person. And we'll see that filled out and explained for us much more clearly when we come to the New Testament and the person of Christ. But the preacher is speaking to us urgently this morning saying this, listen, death is coming for you all. So choose this day whom you will serve. With death comes an accounting of our lives before the God who made us. Eternal life for all who belong to Christ. Eternal destruction and punishment for those who want to keep their lives for themselves and live life under the sun. So I ask you this morning, are you ready to face your maker? Are you ready 
to give account for your life to your creator. At the beginning of the message, I told you the story of Manoj and how he accumulated all this wealth but found no joy. There's a part two to the story. I want to just read that for you. He's writing about this time in 2008. He had accumulated all this wealth in 2008, of course, the, the, the big recession and crash, and his company almost overnight, he said, became worthless. At the same time, his young son ended up in the hospital in a coma, and it wasn't clear that he was going to recover. There was a couple that he and his wife knew that were Christians, and they were praying for him, for them, for their son. He says, I couldn't get my head around the concept of why a couple that I hardly knew would express so much compassion and love. They prayed for my son, and they got the church to pray as well. And on the fourth day of the coma, as the doctor approached my son's bed, my son suddenly bolted upright in bed like there, there had been nothing wrong with him. And he started to pull away all the wires. You've got to realize I was a very ruthless businessman, arrogant. I lived a life that was very sinful in many ways. I had no time for God. I mean, money was my God. But I remember turning to my wife and saying, I'm going to go to church I'm going to thank that couple. We're not going to their home. We're going to go to their church because they prayed for us. We're going to thank them, and we're going to thank their God. And a few weeks later, he went to that church. And you know what happened? At that church, he heard something called the gospel. He heard good news about Jesus Christ. And over time, as he heard and, 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 and sorted through that news, he responded. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, Manoj transitioned from somebody living under the sun to somebody remembering his creator and ready on the last day to stand and give account to him, knowing that he could point to Christ and say, my work is finished in him. He is my only hope. Are you ready to stand before your maker? I want to just close with just one sort of takeaway thought for this book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe you're here for the first time this morning. You're not familiar with this book or you're watching online. Maybe you've been here for the whole series. I want to urge you and encourage you to return to this book over and over. It's a strange book. There are parts of it that are uncomfortable. There are parts of it that are confusing. There are parts of it that are hard to understand. But you know what? I've noticed something in the years that I've been a Christian. I've noticed that people quote Ecclesiastes all the time. There are these little pearls of wisdom. There are these words of delight that jump out and they sort of have Velcro and stick. I'm going to just roll through a few of those in a moment, but I want to encourage you to return to this book over and over. And even, you know, maybe before we start the Gospel of Mark series, read the book of Ecclesiastes again because Ecclesiastes sets us up, sets us up for why we need the Gospel, for why we need rescue and eternal life in Christ. But there are words of delight here. Let me just roll through a few. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This book goads us to think about eternal things, to think about the end of things. You know, I've learned from reading this book, sometimes when I have people in my life that are not 
Christians just to ask in light of Ecclesiastes, hey, how's your life working out? Are you happy? Are you satisfied? Because we know that God has put eternity in every heart. Maybe God will use a goad like that even to awaken hunger for God. Verse 9 of chapter 1 says, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, you know, if there's nothing new under the sun, this can be enormously comforting, especially in a technological age where we're told everything is new and unprecedented. Turns out everything isn't actually new and unprecedented. Turns out there's actually nothing new under the sun because human nature hasn't changed. Came across this uh, sweet little article by uh, Jen Wilkin in which she was talking about how the book of Ecclesiastes has been such a great gift to her as a parent because in this parenting is hard, she's saying, and it seems like everything's changing and we're being told everything's unprecedented, but she says, the book of Ecclesiastes has helped me realize as a parent, these aren't unprecedented. The waters are not uncharted. The eternal God looks down on this generation and he sees no new problems. Not only that, he stands ready as he always does to be faithful to this generation and all generations. Oh, what a word of delight. There's nothing new under the sun. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And he makes everything beautiful in its time. Ecclesiastes widens our perspective to see that God is sovereign in every season of life. We may not understand everything he's doing, but we can know the God who's doing it. I love chapter 7 and verse 2. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So when we have the opportunity to go to a memorial service... It's an opportunity to prepare for our own death and to live now so we can die well then. Who can make straight what the Lord has made crooked? You know, we like to think that we're in control of our lives, but we're really not in control of very much, are we? And so we can entrust our lives to the God who is in control, who is our creator and our redeemer, and who is making everything beautiful in its time. And finally, I leave you with this one. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And you know, living this side of the cross, we have an even greater reason for joy, don't we? And so Paul can write in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord, the risen Christ, always. And again I say, rejoice. So I want to encourage you to make friends with this book and return to it from time to time. And don't be surprised if... Words of delight stick with you and you find that you're able to carry them around profitably in the days ahead.